I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the journalist and author Oliver Berman. For many years, Oliver wrote a weekly piece in The Guardian magazine called This Column Will Change Your Life, in which he examined different aspects of self-help and personal growth, often with a bit of a cynical eye. It was funny. I enjoyed it back in the days when I thought any form of self-reflection was indulgent bollocks and aspiring to personal growth was just corny and weird. Obviously, I've changed a bit since then, and so has Oliver. He was able to sort the rubbish stuff from the good stuff in the world of self-help and has since written a number of his own very intelligent, fascinating and useful books about the way we live. His latest is 4,000 Weeks, which looks at a subject I'm particularly interested in, our collective obsession with productivity. I'll leave him to explain more about his point of view on this. I really enjoyed speaking to him. He's a rational and smart guy with a really interesting take on this subject. I hope you enjoy listening. Oliver, welcome to The Reset. Thanks very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to have you. The book is fantastic. Uh, First of all, tell us why it's called 4,000 Weeks. (laughs) Well, this is very roughly, I just went for the arresting round number, but this is very roughly the number of weeks you'll have in a life if you you live the sort of average lifespan in the West. Actually, it's a few more than 4,000 for most people, but only... Only a few. <laughs> so um, I really wanted to sort of grab people's attention with the idea of how finite uh, our time is. Uh, although I hope that the book is not a stress-inducing book. I think the book is a, I hope the book is a liberating and stress-reducing book. I concede that there's something a bit a bit stress-inducing about that title. <laughs> I suppose, uh, you know, you're using it as an example of, look, you, you've got a very finite time. So I guess your central premise is, don't be fooled into thinking you can do everything. Try to prioritize a bit because, um, you know, in a, in a in a large way, you're you're taking aim at the sort of cult of productivity in this book, aren't you? Yeah, right. I think there's sort of <clears throat> there's probably three ways of basic ways of thinking about your time. There's the way that lots of people have, especially in 
when they're younger, which is as if as if they had all the time in the world and don't need to think about it as precious. Then there's this second way, which I think you might sometimes misunderstand it as being my way if you just looked at the title of my book, right? Which is like, okay, time's really short. So you have to really, you know, try really hard to to wring as much value out of it as possible and feel bad if you're not using every moment in a kind of fantastically impressive way. I wanted the third option here, which is to say, like, look, we are just so limited in our time that there's just no need to beat yourself up about not being able to do everything. There's no need to feel bad about missing out on experiences because you're going to miss out on a heck of a lot of experiences. There's no, there's no reason to spend your life trying to kind of get on top of everything and, and be in total command of your time or anything like that because we are just too finite for that. So you might as well relax and then uh, pour your time and pour your attention into doing, you know, a few things that really matter to you. I don't think it's um, a recipe for sort of being idle, unless that's your absolute passion in life, in which case, fair enough. But but it's just a recipe for like not distracting yourself with this kind of impossible quest to endlessly do more and endlessly be all things to all people and, and stuff like that. Do you think that this is uh, a sort of a, a marketing scam linked to, to capitalism, this sort of, you know, culture of try and do everything, try and be everyone? Is it because, you know, that that is making someone somewhere money? Or is it, uh, is it part of human nature? Have humans always been like this sort of driven and to, to not be able to sit still? I think it's both. I think the great sort of <clears throat> genius and evil <laughs> of capitalism is that it takes – you know, it, it's so good at co-opting um, who we already are as human beings. And so I think that this this unwillingness to face the truth of our limitations and to keep on this treadmill of like trying to do more and more and, and get uh, more and more control over time, I think that is baked in to human nature because we have a very huge difficulty, understandably, with the idea that one day it's all going to end or that we have to sacrifice things and not do certain things in order to focus on other things. And then, you know, uh, absolutely, there are now people in whose very great interest it is to keep us uh, on that treadmill, you know, certain specific things like people peddling ways to become more productive and efficient, but, but also just this general way in which, um, you know, consumerism, especially kind of doesn't want you doesn't want you satisfied, right? Doesn't want you to buy one product and think, great, I don't need any more products now. I've got the one I needed and I can just relax. So so there is this kind of endless dissatisfaction, which goes way back, right? I mean, it's the heart of the Buddha's initial insights into human nature that we're always dissatisfied, but but can be really exploited for other people's profit as well. Totally. Yeah. How do we embrace our limits? That's one of your, your big things. How do, how, how do we actually sort of start to recognize what they are and be okay with them? Because it's a tough thing to do, isn't it, for, for a lot of people to accept, okay, that's not something that I'm going to be able to achieve in life. That's not for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I, I sort of answer it in two ways. And one is this sort of big perspective shift that I already sort of mentioned a bit and we can go into some more. But I think on a on the ground level, um, 
a big part of it is just this practice of getting a little bit more comfortable with discomfort, if that isn't too paradoxical. So I'll give an example from how I've changed my working practices. I used to always structure my day and my week and just my life in general in a way that sort of what I did first was to try to clear the decks, to try to answer all the outstanding emails, to deal with all the people who wanted things from me or the things I felt I ought to do. And then I told myself, you know, then I would get the time to work on the important project, do the things I was passionate about. And for various reasons, which we can talk about, if you do that, you will never get to those things because the decks are never clear and they keep filling up with more stuff. And there's a basically an infinite supply of things like that. So I think one very simple way to um, start to embrace your limitations and focus on in, in order to sort of get around to what counts for you is, you know, with whatever flexibility you have over your work and people have different amounts, you know, for autonomy to just do those important things first and then later turn to all those kind of deck clearing activities. So now I'm lucky to be able to structure my own days. I will um, spend the first three or so hours working on stuff that is right at the core of what I want to do. And I'll turn later to all the other stuff. And it takes a kind of tolerance of anxiety, right? Because while you're doing those that important thing at nine o'clock in the morning or whatever, you know in the back of your mind that there's like open loops and unanswered emails and maybe somebody's getting mad with you somewhere or impatient about your failure to do something. And you just have to sort of lean into that a bit and discover that it doesn't kill you, right? I mean, it's not that kind of discomfort in almost every case is very tolerable. And in the long run, it's also the way to be more useful to other people, right? Because you will actually then be focusing on the thing that you're doing that can provide some some value to them. But it takes a certain, you know, the, the part of me that wants to not be limited wants to say like, okay, first of all, I'm going to spend two hours just getting through absolutely everything else on my plate. I'm going to get through, you know, 90 items on my to-do list. Well, it never happens. Uh, and the to-do list is usually in longer at the end of that period than at the beginning of it. So that sort of, I'm just going to, uh, there's a creativity coach called Jessica Abel who describes this as paying yourself first with time. Right. Equivalent to the financial advice to pay yourself first, put money into savings prior to spending rather than hoping there'll be some left over. So yeah, just like the willingness to focus on something that matters to you even though there's all this other unfinished stuff. I talk and write a lot in the reset about addiction, uh, usually drink, drugs, and other bad things like that. But yeah. it strikes me some people get addicted to productivity because complete the completion of tasks uh, and sort of meeting goals does actually, I don't know if this is true scientifically, but it does seem to sort of release, you know, dopamine, does release happiness inside of you. And I feel that some people, and I've certainly found myself in this state before, where you're so hooked on that that you can't bear to stop. Because if yeah. you have any period where you're not hitting a goal, hitting a target, achieving something, even if it's small, then your your body and your brain start to wonder where all that, where those little hit, hits of happiness are. Do you think it, it, it is actually almost physically addictive? I mean, I think it probably, 
possibly could be. I, I, I'll, if it's all right, I'll sort of bounce off that into right. the thing that make, makes me think of in terms of addiction, which is, you know, I'm not an expert on substance addiction. And, mm. and I think I know that people do sometimes get a bit offended when you start to um, draw parallels between alcoholism, drug addiction, things mm. like that, and and this kind of behavioral mm. quote addiction. But I think that what makes that frame so useful for thinking about all sorts of things that we do and lots and lots of the ways that we approach our time is that I think at the core of all of these kinds of addictions, there is very often a desire not to experience certain feelings, right? So that's kind of obvious in the cliched situation of why somebody might drink to excess. Um, but I think that very often we get sort of hyperproductive. Yeah, you could say for the dopamine hit, but you could equally say to not have to feel the fact that we are limited and that we're not going to get to the top of this mountain, if this infinite mountain of, of, of possible things to do and work to do. It's much more comfortable to be to feel that you're en route to that moment in the future when you're finally going to be like on top of your stuff than it is to sort of drop into the moment and how it really feels, which is no, you know, if I'm going to spend this time with these people, I'm going to have to not spend it with those people. If I'm going to go all in on this project, I'm going to have to put that project on hold. This is unpleasant feelings. And um, I think that sort of emotional avoidance is the feeling that if you, let yourself feel your true feelings, that would be a problem. I think that probably is a motivator of of both kinds of addiction here, the substance kind and the 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 behavioral kind. What do you do when you're trying to make a distinction? Because it's not always easy between, you know, things that um are truly meaningful, which are the things you're saying we should prioritize. Yeah. And and the other stuff that we should neglect because it can be hard. You get lost in all of the responsibilities and activities of your own life. And sometimes it can be really difficult to, to, to distinguish between all of those things yeah. and think, well, what are the important things here? Totally. I think that's a really, really good point. Uh, a couple of things. I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a certain element of tossing a coin here that we shouldn't, mm. that we shouldn't overlook, right? That part of what I'm trying to argue in this book is that so many things can feel like they matter to us compared to um, the amount of time we've actually got to to do things that matter, that you're going to get a lot of situations where, frankly, the dilemma that you're feeling is between two totally legitimate things. Um, you know, let's say let's say you have sort of two creative passions outside of your job. That's a common situation for people. You know, you want to be a screenwriter and you want to write songs or something, or whatever. And you feel that you have to like focus on one rather than the other. Which is it? Which is it? The answer kind of, it doesn't matter. If they're both, um, if two things that you're choosing between both seem overwhelmingly meaningful to you, then in a way, it, it can't matter very much uh, uh, which, which one you, you choose because you will be doing something meaningful either way. Of course, there are lots of situations where it's harder to tell whether something is meaningful at all. You're not choosing between two things that you know you really care about. You're trying to work out what you what you care about. Um, and there, I think, it does get quite intuitive. I, I like this question that I talk about in the book that comes from James Hollis, the psychotherapist, that we should ask whether a particular choice or a life path um, 
enlarges us or diminishes us. It's a it's an interesting form of words that gets around this question of like, oh, does this make me happy? Which is a total minefield for all sorts of reasons. It's just this question of like, do you feel that what you're doing is in the service of growth somehow? And and what's useful about this to me anyway, is that like, you know, if you think about relationships, jobs, all sorts of contexts, that they have a lot of kind of negative experiences associated with them. You come across troubles and disagreements and all sorts of stuff. And sometimes those are bad disagreements. You know, it's like, oh no, you're in a toxic relationship. You should get out of it. But sometimes they're just the stuff of growth and maturity and learning to, you know, life has problems. And by confronting those challenges, you become a bigger person. So that question does it enlarge me or diminish me? I think is a very useful way to tell those two kinds of experience apart. If you're finding your work really tough at the moment and to the point that you don't want to do it, say, you can probably answer the question like, is it, is it sort of growth oriented? Are you, is it, is it unpleasant, but you're getting somewhere out of going through those trials mm. or is it just like, I'm mm. in the wrong career or something mm. so i think that's a useful that that idea of growth as opposed to happiness because i think if you just pursue happiness in life you end up just usually choosing comfortable options when that's not necessarily what's most meaningful for you that was a long answer sorry well uh, no really interesting uh, another sort of word that pops up a lot in the book that i'm really interested in is patience patience my lack of patience when i was younger was probably what the single biggest source of my frustration and anger and periods of unhappiness because I wanted things I, once I'd made decisions about things I wanted to happen I mm -hmm. was annoyed when they just didn't happen at the speed I needed right. them to right and, right and I and I and I you know reading your book I, and I sort of was, was confirmed with this is this is very common and this is also part of modern culture isn't it yeah yeah but you say that you know getting to grips with the idea of patience is, is one of the most important things we need to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's just a really classic example of the way that we we want to control reality in ways that are either we can't or that are um, sort of self-defeating. So I use the example of reading, especially in fiction. This is an experience that where the speed that which it can happen is basically sort of dictated by the book. It's not dictated by you. You can get a bit faster, um, train yourself to read a bit faster. But if you race through a novel at the fastest you possibly can, or you use speed reading techniques to, to get through a novel, like you've just removed the point of, of reading that novel. You might as well do something else. And then in all sorts of other contexts, right? If you if you are willing to let uh, a challenge and a professional challenge take the time it takes, you might actually end up with a much quicker solution to it than if you were trying to like chivy it and make it go at your own uh, speed. So there is this kind of amazing power in being able to resist the sort of omnipresent cultural pressure to go faster and faster. It's not just that there's more peace of mind that way. In fact. Often there isn't more peace of mind at first because it feels kind of it makes you feel antsy and uncomfortable, but but there is like a real power because you sort of exert a bit more influence over the world when you when you can let certain things unfold at their own pace, and that's the thing where obviously the technology and the capitalism part of it are so relevant because we are sold this idea that like 
if we could only adopt enough technologies to do things fast enough, we'll feel peace of mind and we'll be sort of in control of things and things will be going as we want them to go. But it's a universal experience that uh, that um, technologies that save us time make everyone more impatient, right? So societies mm -hmm. that have jet engines and the internet and dishwashers and microwaves are more impatient societies. Uh, and it's actually worse to what, like I would, the example that always resonates for me is like, if somebody tells me I've got to wait three days because they're going to send something in snail mail, I'll live. <laughs> but if a web page takes like 10 seconds to load, like a real <laughs> slow, a really slow uh, loading web page, that's like, that's really, really irritating. Have you, have you heard of this app GoPuff that's getting heavily advertised everywhere? Uh, I, I haven't. No. My my um my kids told me about it. It's nothing particularly revolutionary. It's just like Uber Eats or Deliveroo, but what it delivers is just sort of snacks. Like you know, you don't. It's somewhere between Deliveroo and getting your shopping from Sainsbury's online. Right. In as much as you don't have. To Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Them. get a big shop or right. a takeaway but if you want if you if it's late and you kind of suddenly find yourself craving maybe a cornetto and a bag of what's it or right. or a twix they'll bring it and they'll bring <laughs> it in about 10 minutes flat on a bike <laughs> so it's the equivalent of when you know you're a student and you think can someone go out to the all-night petrol station yeah, yeah. because i'm hungry my kids discovered this because it quite cannily is being heavily marketed on places like TikTok right. to young people who love that stuff. And they picked on me rather than their mother because they know that I also am susceptible to that kind of convenience. Yeah, yeah. And you find yourself ordering like a bag of Maltesers at 10 in the evening just for the hell of it. Right. Um, uh, you know, I think usually they come on push bike, but you know, if they, if they don't, then there's obviously, you know, a huge, uh, environmental issue with this as well. Yeah. But, um, but I did think of that when I was reading, um, parts of your book where it says, you know, too much convenience is soul destroying. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that I, maybe that's a trivial, a, a trivial example in the sense it's a good example, but it's trivial in the sense that like, probably not going to like 
massively negatively impact your life to get to get Maltesers <laughs> delivered. No, but I, 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 no, but I will be furious now if I ever have to wait for Maltesers. Right. So there is that <laughs> phenomenon, right? There's this fact that when certain things become convenient, other things become that are, that don't become convenient become more annoying. Um, I lived for a long time in New York City, and the I, I mean, there's no research here. I'm just this is just my guess but i've got to believe that the incredible impatience of drivers stuck in traffic there honking their horns which is a sort of mm. extraordinary thing at the best of times i've got to believe that is worse the the easier it is for those people to do all sorts of other things instantaneously through mm. through um services like the one you mentioned or through you know just the internet you know if you can if you can find out the news that's happening 3000 miles away in no time at all if you can get the sports results in less than a second if you can message your friend who lives on the other side of the country in a second it's kind of even more infuriating that the sort of lumps of metal in front of you on the road can't be made to move at the speed you wish they could move so there is that whole problem with convenience and then the other thing is that convenience tends to eliminate um it, it's a sort of blunt tool because it eliminates certain things from our lives that we don't want to do but it then ends up sort of eliminating other things as well so the sort of classic example if you it, it's so easy to sort of stay at home and watch movies that you might otherwise have watched in the cinema so easy to get food delivered to your house that you might otherwise have gone out to get or eaten in a restaurant there's actually a natural tendency or sort of understandable tendency towards not going out, not meeting up with your friends, not going to public places, not doing all these things that actually we kind of really get a lot out of, out of doing. I mean, maybe you have had a really good, like, uh, passing friendship with the guy who runs the shop on the corner where you would have yeah. bought the yeah, yeah. Um And now that's, and now that's gone, you know, if, if you're always just going to wait for them to be um, brought to you. Is that what you mean by the benefits of communal ritual? Well, I guess the ritual part of that is slightly different. That's to do with the rhythms that like, you know, things like um, the benefits of cultures where people tend to all go on holiday at the same time in the summer or even those traditional religious communities where like one day a week nobody is working. Um, but again, I guess what those things all have in common is there is this aspect to time that gets this value from doing things together. It's not what we think we want. Um, we think we want total control over our time and to be able to be left alone whenever we choose. But you can actually have too much control over your own time. Um, and I even have a bit of this in my life, right? So I'm very much someone, perhaps like you, you know, who sets their own hours, who has to work, otherwise something will, <laughs> things will go wrong, but like doesn't have to work in any rhythm that somebody else dictates and that's great in many ways but you know i've got some other friends who are also in that situation and it's impossible to make plans to meet up because mm. everyone has their own schedule it's all there's no synchronicity to it uh then you know so in cultures and at times in history when people all sort of worked the same hours and they got out of work at the same time and they were off on the same days there is a benefit to that which is you know obviously that you get to spend time together in a more in a neat it's, it's easier to create those situations uh, i like the phrase that you use why burning your bridges beats keeping your options open 
I really like that because we're all juggling keeping our options open <laughs> all the time, which, have, yeah. so, you know, very often stops you from making a, a unilateral and focused decision. Yeah. Like, yeah. I am going to do this one thing. I mean, it, it works with giving things up as well. When I gave up drinking, the, the one of the big points for me was rather than saying I'm going to try and cut down or I'm going to stop drinking for a while, but who knows in the future, mm. you kind of make a unilateral decision. So I'm just never going to drink again. And there was something about that that felt quite powerful because it meant I was no longer wrestling with a decision every time, you know, someone opened a bottle of wine, uh, which I think does link in in some way to this, like burning your bridges, making more definitive decisions and just taking choices away from you allows you to be more focused, right? Is that that what you mean by that? I think it is. I think that, I, I mean, I think you raise a really good point about how often a bright line is better than a, than a sort of, vega thing i think it's a slightly different point but it's all part of the same thing right mm. which is like it, the, in that case yeah you just sort of um you make the decision you you maybe you announce the decision to a few people mm. um it becomes something that you know there's no room for sort of ha- being haunted by regret or by wondering if now is the day to be like should you have your two drinks a week, like it's a, is today one of those days? It's just very simple. It's like, no, don't drink anymore. Um, the other aspect, I suppose, of burning your bridges in terms of decisions that are not just personal, decisions that um, change your environment in some specific way. So, you know, uh, getting married is a, or, or indeed getting divorced, I suppose, uh, buying a house or uh, switching jobs. You know, these are all different things that are more or less difficult to go back on. Obviously, people do get married and then stop being married. But generally speaking, these are these are sort of pretty big decisions. And I think that even on a much smaller level, you can make um, irreversible decisions. You can, you know, if you're trying to figure out which of two products to buy and you're thinking about it for weeks, you can just buy one of them and not the other one and there's an end to it. And what happens in all these cases is people think that they want to keep their options open. They think because it makes them feel like they're in control of things to be like, well, I haven't committed. I'm sort of holding back from from things. I'm the one in charge. I could always switch. In fact, what you find in both in experience, but also like there's research to show this, um, is that people are happier with choices that they feel they can't go back on all else being equal. So, cause they're not haunted by this thought of like, well, maybe I should make a different choice. Maybe I should go back on it. It's like, no, here you are, you've made your bed and it's actually very freeing to just be like, okay, I've just got to try to, um, go, go forward into this. Um, you know, I think that, uh, there's so many, I can think of it so many times in my own life, you know, where I've, for one reason or other, finally managed to make myself just commit to a thing. And then you're like, oh, great. Now it's not actually stressful because all you've got to do is try and make this thing work. Um, just lastly, I want to talk to you about the a column that you wrote in The Guardian for many years. This column will change your life, which I was a big fan of. And, you know, I, I, I'm interested to know the, the sort of how long did you write that for? It was a long time, wasn't it? Was it was 12 years in the end. Shockingly. 12, 12 yeah. years. So I'm fascinated by the journey that must have taken you on because I, I, I get the sense that it may have been a sort of quite a cynical look at some of the sort of ideas about personal growth and self-help and the pursuit of happiness. And yet over those years, 
you were sort of seduced in some ways by by some of this stuff. I, I, am I right in thinking that? What was the yeah. journey like yeah, for you no, through those 12 years? Yeah, no, it's definitely a journey from sort of cynicism to sincerity in a way. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't think I... I don't think I was completely cynical at the at the outset, but I was pretty, I was I was pretty generally sort of mocking. Um, I think that was probably sort of a defensive a defense mechanism, a way to sort of encounter this material while also feeling, excuse me, while also feeling that I was, um, you know, not not falling for it. Um, in some ways it was just more sort of i mean partly i'm just sort of a bit of a contrarian and so i thought that what would be fun would be to sort of poke fun at um at bad self-help but actually when your readership is guardian readers what's kind of more contrarian and fun is to say actually there's some value here you know mm, some, mm. <laughs> and and i did also sort of encounter this moment i always think about it in the context of gratitude journals because there's a lot of pretty convincing research about gratitude journals working you know, they really have a positive impact on your life to sort of spend a moment each day listing three things that you're grateful for that happened that day. At the same time, uh, if you're a bit skeptical, if you're British, if you're male, you know, <laughs> you're predisposed to be like to cringe in a serious way at that kind of idea. And I just realized that there were going to be these moments, and this was one of them, where you sort of had to decide, are you going to do what makes you feel cool or are you going to do the thing that works and um very often like you know you don't even need to make that sacrifice because nobody needs to know that you keep a, a gratitude <laughs> well we know now oliver <laughs> you can just uh, do it and deny i mean you it haven't admitted it but i've got a strong <laughs> sense now that you keep one <laughs> interesting i actually actually now i don't though it is part of what comes up in the i do do journaling for sure mm. and uh, and that is part of what comes up what comes up there so yeah it's just like uh, increasingly, I think you probably need to lean into the cringe, as I've <laughs> said in the past, because that reaction is a sign that it touches something vulnerable in you, right? I mean, mm. if things are just boring and stupid to you, you don't you don't cringe at them; you just move on. Mm. If something is like, oh, I really don't like don't like that, uh, don't like thinking about that, then it's useful to ask why not because you therefore must embrace that practice or go on that you know mm. go join that cult but just uh because like there's some message there in that in that cringe response and it's worth thinking about and it might be that actually you need a bit more of whatever that is that's making you cringe um it's an age thing as well i guess isn't it i mean in a in a superficial way in a simple way i guess i mean for me personally yeah i was a, a very very similar um, and then suddenly, I, I guess maybe age, I don't know, is is it common that people become less cynical about this stuff as they get older? Is it the slings and arrows of life and you become battered and bruised and therefore you just become more open to anything that you think might help? <laughs> Whereas when you're younger, you haven't had as much pain yet. So you think, oh, I got pride. don't need to bother myself with this. I think it's, yeah, I think it's all of those things. And I think the other, I mean, the way that I always like to think about it, the way Carl Jung um the psychologist, you know, thought about um, the midlife crisis, which has become a kind of a cliche and a humor, a mm. joke in our society. But just this notion that there very often is a moment in people's adulthood where um, strategies that have served them perfectly well, not because they were all wrong all along with, but they just were perfectly good to a certain phase of life. 
stop being so useful in the sort of second part of of an adult life uh, which is very vague you know it could be in your 30s or your 60s that um that that sort of inflection point comes so you just sort of think like you, you spend a lot of the early adulthood sort of building things and getting places and accumulating things and then you, you you realize at a certain point that that's not the whole story and that if you just were to carry on doing it in that way to the end of your life something serious would be would be missing not because it was wrong to sort of focus on rising through the ranks at work or you know accumulating money or whatever it might be that you've been focused on but just because it's not the only thing and it sort of gets a bit old as you get mm. a bit old <laughs> mm. Mm. um it's like music i was thinking that about music this afternoon i was thinking i listen to such weird music on my spotify algorithm it throws <laughs> up more and more weird jazz and world music and all the sort of music that i would have sneered and taken the piss out for being pretentious <laughs> when i was younger yeah. and i thought oh it's just because you wanted the immediate gratification of easy pop music when you're young. Yeah. And then in the end, your brain like doesn't stop liking it, but it requires more because yes. you, yeah, and it has to look elsewhere. I guess yeah. that, that yeah. can be applied to all sorts of different things really, can't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. You want to go deeper or you want to go broader. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, just lastly, I was just thinking, you mentioned that you spent some time living in New York. Now I know it's New York and not California, but nonetheless did spending time in America change your attitude as well because you rightly point out earlier that you know being british and living in our society is a hindrance if you want to embrace these kind of ideas that we've been <laughs> discussing today whereas in america i guess it's slightly easier to lean into it is that right yeah i mean i think every culture has its issues there and if you go far enough to the west coast i think probably there's an almost a you maybe you can be too open to yeah some kinds of lifestyles and approaches but yeah i've always appreciated i mean i do feel very at home in in new york i don't i i am now a dual citizen as it happens but i don't feel like i'm an american or anything like that but i do think i'm a new yorker in certain ways and that if you stay there for a decade or so you probably find that you will will be and that does there is an there is an openness about these things a directness there is like you know this is so it is so far from embarrassing to talk about like something you were saying to your therapist or something. Mm. In, uh, I mean, it's, it's almost embarrassing in a different way, which is, it's like, it's too cliched to, to, be, yeah, yeah. to be worth yeah. saying. Um, so there is a kind of, there is a kind of openness to um, talking about this kind of stuff that I think is, is, is really useful. On the other hand, you know, I'm not completely, what I like about the, 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 the British style of, of these things is not the kind of real old fashioned stiff upper lip thing, which is about pretending that things are good when they're not. But there is a kind of, I think the, the there is a kind of uh, refusal to take it all too seriously, which is, which is helpful, right? So I think the, you can go too far with that. There's a sort of British failure to sometimes take things seriously enough. But then there is an American failure to take oneself much too seriously. So I guess I hope I'm coming down somewhere in the middle around, I don't know, Reykjavik or something <laughs> in Atlantic, where, where you can sort of take these things properly seriously in one sense of the word serious. You don't, you don't mock the idea that we have emotional lives that are worth exploring and taking, taking seriously. But you can sort of see that it is all a bit absurd, like the human condition is a bit of a joke on some level mm. and 
and humor is a important way to 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 think about that and actually maybe new york is that midpoint right it's the west coast on one side and uh the uk on the other and uh there's that kind of uh humorous but serious thing happening right around brooklyn and manhattan <laughs> oliver thank you ever so much for taking the time to tell us more about the book and speak to us today so a real pleasure uh, the book's fantastic. 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals is out now. Um, so thank you ever so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. There you go. That was Oliver Bertman. His book is called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, and it's out now. The link should be in the blurb that came with this episode. It's a fascinating and very practical read. I can recommend it. Another great read is my weekly reset newsletter. So if you haven't subscribed already, then do so now via sandalaney.substack.com. And if you want to get my new weekly bonus podcast, Club Reset, then you can upgrade to a paid subscription either on my Substack or on the wonderful new podcast platform, hubwave.net. For just a fiver a month, you get that exclusive pod and a ton of other special content too. Plus, you get to support this wonderful endeavour. That's it for this week, gang. Until next time, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.